Before we begin, don't forget that if you want to hear this episode ad-free, then sign up to our members channel. Just search for What's the Story Crime in Apple Podcasts or follow the link in our show notes. Members will get exclusive access to all episodes of Smoking Gun, completely ad-free, before anyone else. The gleaming bikes with their bright, polished frames were displayed in rainbow colour order, red through to violet. The shop's owner never tired of seeing the children's eyes light up when they entered his place of business, eager to choose their brand new bike. It was a magical rite of passage, one that always warmed his heart, even after 20 years of trading. He thought about the sense of freedom that would follow for those children as they flew down the street on their new wheels, a feeling that would stay with them long after they'd left the store. The bikes he sold would make memories that would be cherished for lifetimes. That is, 99.9% of the time. Because in one heartbreaking case, whilst beloved by its owner, the bike proved to be the smoking gun in solving her murder. My name is Romola Gary. And I'm an actress who's always been fascinated by how criminal cases are solved. The amazing processes that go on behind the scenes. The clues that clinch the case. And my name is Tracy Alexander. I'm the president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. I've spent years inside these processes, searching for those clues. I've dedicated my career to using science to help the course of justice. And my work has ensured that hundreds of criminals have gone to prison and the wrongly accused go free. Together, we're going to lift the lid on some of the most extraordinary cases from around the world. We'll discover how, with the help of science, everyday items have become the key to catching a killer. From What's the Story Sounds, this is Smoking Gun, the bike paint. It's the morning of June the 8th, 2022. A man shuffles into a room offset from one of the corridors in the maze that is Florence State Prison, Arizona's biggest penitentiary. The room is brightly lit, despite its lack of external windows. On one side is a large glass pane, through which you can see another room lined with chairs. But on this side of the glass, there's only one seat something resembling a dentist chair. And the man knows it will be the last chair he'll ever sit on. This is his day of execution. He can feel everyone's eyes upon him, the eyes of the prison warden, the eyes of the medical professionals there to administer the lethal injection, and the eyes of Vicky Hoskinson's family, who he's been convicted of murdering. In a few minutes, the man will protest his innocence for the final time. He won't look at the Hoskinson family. He'll offer no apologies. 
and by 10.16am that morning, as the chemicals injected into his arm with the sole purpose of stopping his heart take effect, the man will breathe his last breath. The man and his story are inextricably linked to that of Vicky Lynn Hoskinson. But it's a story that begins over three decades earlier, as eight-year-old Vicky is growing up in her hometown of Flowing Wells in northern Tucson, a part of Pima County, Arizona. With a population of under 12,000, Flowing Wells is a close-knit place. Neighbours not only know each other, they look out for one another. The Hoskinsons were well known. There was mum and dad, Debbie and Rodney, and the three girls, Carrie, Stephanie and Vicky. Vicky was outgoing and fun-loving, regularly seen with her auburn hair stuck to her face as a result of tearing around the neighbourhood on her bike at top speed. In fact, just a few weeks earlier, her mum Debbie had decided to cut her daughter's hair short to make it more manageable for school. Vicky was a third grader, attending school about a mile away at Homer Davis Elementary. She enjoyed school. Maybe not as much as playing with her toys at home, hitting softballs, or going to the local fast food joint for tacos with her dad, but she was a conscientious student. A conscientious child, full stop. Earlier that semester, Vicky's class had taken a lesson in stranger danger and how to stay safe, which she told her family all about over dinner that evening. On the afternoon of Monday, September 17th, 1984, at around 3pm, Vicky, as usual, swept through the front door like a whirlwind and threw her school bag to the floor. She'd had a good day. But before she settled down to play, her mother had an errand for the pair of them to run. She needed to post a birthday card to Vicky's aunt and suggested they walk to the nearby postbox together. Vicky, however, sensing a rare opportunity to be independent, begged her mother to let her do it by herself. She wasn't normally allowed to go out unsupervised or without a buddy. But today, Debbie caved allowing Vicky to hop on her beloved bike and cycle the two blocks to the postbox solo. Vicky was over the moon at the chance to spread her wings and promised to be back as fast as she could. She told her mother she loved her and took off down the street. With the wind at her back, she completed her task in no time at all and quickly turned her bike towards home. But en route, she bumped into one of her friends, a girl named Jennifer, who asked Vicky if she'd like to come round to her house to play. Knowing her mum would be waiting for her, Vicky told Jennifer she'd have to go home first to check. She pedalled even faster than before, excited at the prospect of an evening spent playing Barbies with her pal. But tragically, Vicky would never make it to the play date. In fact, Jennifer would never see her classmate again. At home, Debbie was looking out of the window anxiously. Thirty minutes had passed by this point, and there was still no sign of her daughter flying along the road on her bike. 
Getting to the postbox and back should have taken no more than ten minutes, even if Vicky was dawdling. Debbie asked Stephanie, Vicky's older sister, to go out and look for her sibling. A tight knot was starting to form in Debbie's stomach, and with every minute that went by, her anxiety increased tenfold. Something just didn't feel right. Her husband, Rodney, was less worried. Girls will be girls, he always said. He imagined Vicky had simply gotten distracted. Perhaps she'd run into a friend, or maybe she was playing with one of the neighbour's dogs. He was certain Stephanie would find her within minutes, and they'd both arrive home together, wondering what all the fuss was about. Meanwhile, Stephanie duly hopped onto her own bike and took off in search of Vicky. It was while cycling down Posito Place, a street a short distance from the postbox, and just one block from their school, that she caught sight of something familiar up ahead. She had a feeling she knew what she was looking at, but she had to be sure. She pulled on her brakes hard and came to a sudden stop. Stephanie felt a cold shiver run down her spine. There, at her feet, was Vicky's bright pink bike, lying on the footpath, but its owner was nowhere in sight. Stephanie pedalled home at breakneck speed, breathlessly informing her mum, who was waiting by the front door, about her discovery. Debbie asked Stephanie to take her back to Vicky's bike, and the two climbed into the family car and returned to Posito Place. Debbie knew that if what her daughter was saying was true, then her fears were justified. Vicky's bike was her pride and joy. She would never just leave it out in the open where anyone could take it. Sure enough, there it was, lying on the side of the road. Some paint from the metalwork was scratched and flaking, but other than that, it was exactly as Debbie had last seen it, just without its rider. Debbie put Vicky's bike in the boot of her car and drove home, blinking through the tears as the gravity of the situation dawned upon her. Upon arrival, she immediately picked up the landline, the receiver nearly falling out of her trembling hand and dialed 911. The Pima County Sheriff's Department response was swift. Detective Gary Damers arrived at the Hoskinson's home within half an hour. A command centre from which to run the investigation was in operation mere hours after that. The same questions plagued everyone. What had happened to Vicky? Had she abandoned her bike and gone off to play? Her mother knew this would not be the case. As she spoke with the cops, she knew her daughter wasn't lost. She hadn't got distracted. In fact, the only plausible explanation she could think of was that Vicky had been taken. And she needed to find whoever had taken her. She needed to get her back. Pima County Sheriff's Department couldn't help but share the Hoskinson's fears. The little girl wasn't anywhere to be found on the streets adjacent to where her bike had been left. Vicky wasn't a wayward child, and she'd clearly been on her way home, a fact that was quickly corroborated by her friend Jennifer. Initial searches and door knocks, which officers started on Pasito Place before spreading outwards across town, offered up no leads. The investigation quickly grew in scale. Other law enforcement agencies were brought in to assist the local police, including the Federal Bureau of Investigation, as well as roughly 100 volunteers 
who went door to door in search of Vicky. Sniffer dogs were deployed to follow scent trails and helicopters searched the skies above flowing wells and beyond looking for clues. In the more remote parts of Pima County, four-wheel drives were used to scour areas where the terrain quickly grew arid and dusty. The news of Vicky's disappearance spread like wildfire. So much so that by day two of the investigation, a hundred tip-offs had already flooded the police hotline. One of these callers said she'd seen Vicky with a woman at the shopping mall in Tucson. They described a young girl matching Vicky's description, crying and asking to go home. The call handler rushed the tip through to detectives, who considered this a credible lead, certainly the best intel they had to go on thus far. The caller had specific details about how Vicky looked and what she was wearing, right down to her lace-up shoes. More importantly, they also remembered the woman she was with, and with their testimony, police compiled a composite sketch, which was released to the public. Vicky's family, despite the police's optimism, dismissed the caller out of hand. They didn't believe this person, however well-intentioned they might be, had actually seen their daughter, mainly because of that description of her footwear. Vicky had been wearing Velcro shoes when she disappeared, not lace-ups. The lead ultimately went nowhere. Debbie shifted awkwardly in her seat. The lump in the back of her throat made her worry that when she opened her mouth to speak, no sound would come out. She didn't like all the cameras pointing at her face, or the microphones aimed in her direction. She was a private person, who in any other circumstances would have run a mile from the media army that had assembled before her, but the police had assured her that this news conference would spread awareness about Vicky being missing, that it might encourage someone who knew her whereabouts to come forward. So she swallowed her fear, took a deep breath, and clutched tightly to the Cabbage Patch doll in her hand. It was her daughter's favourite. Directly to Vicky, she said, We love you, babe. We hope you'll be home real soon. Then... To anyone who could help her. We hope whoever has Vicky, or knows where Vicky is, will call 911 or the command centre so Vicky can be returned home safely. While the news conference had the desired effect, bringing in hundreds more tip offs, none piqued the police's interest. They were either implausible or could be ruled out with simple checks and cross references. That was until the 18th of September, the day after Vicky's disappearance, when a gentleman called Sam Hall made a call to the station. Sam was the PE teacher at Vicky's school and had been supervising a group of students at play when he noticed a suspicious vehicle, a black Datsun with California tags, pass by the schoolyard, driving noticeably slowly. The figure at the wheel a man with long hair and a beard, appeared to be observing the children. Sam had such a strong reaction to the car, or more accurately, to the man sitting inside it, that he had written down the number plate. 
He later told the Tucson Citizen newspaper about what he'd witnessed, saying, When I saw the guy, I could feel the hair stand up on the back of my neck. I could feel my skin get goosebumps. Other witnesses corroborated the story. One student remembered the man in the car making lewd gestures at her. Another recalled observing the car reverse into a lamppost before driving away haphazardly, swerving this way and that as it departed the scene. Both Sam and the other witnesses to the Datsun had both spotted it at roughly 3pm, just 20 minutes before Vicky was last seen in her neighbourhood, a short drive away. So what had Sam Hall and the rest of these witnesses actually seen? Who had they seen? And did it have anything to do with what happened to Vicky on the 17th of September? As it turned out, Sam's decision to write down the vehicle's number plate proved to be a vital one. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Two days after Sam Hall made the call police had tracked down the car in question. It was registered to a house in Kerrville, Texas, over 800 miles from Flowing Wells. After liaising with the FBI and law enforcement handling the case in Arizona, Kerrville officers were dispatched to the address in question. They noted there was no car on the drive as they proceeded to the front door. Frank Jarvis Atwood Sr. answered cheerfully. A retired Army Brigadier General, he was welcoming of other officials. Though the same could not be said of his wife. Frank Sr. revealed their grown-up son, Frank Atwood Jr., also lived with them. In fact, it was his background check which made the FBI sit up and take notice. There were kidnapping and child molestation charges on Atwood's file as well as the fact he was out on parole in California for sexual abuse of an eight-year-old boy. Where had he been on the day of Vicky's disappearance? Was he ever in Arizona? While Frank's mother eyed the officers suspiciously and refused to give over any information about her son, Frank Sr. was more forthcoming. While he didn't know where his son was at that present moment, he promised he'd get in touch with police when his son arrived home. And he was true to his word. Just a few hours after the police visit, the Atwoods' home telephone began to trill. It was Frank. His car had broken down in Texas, he said, and he needed money wired to him so he could pay to get it fixed. His mother, who had answered the phone, dutifully wrote down the address of the mechanics where Frank and his car awaited a new transmission. And just half an hour later, Frank Sr. took the piece of paper his wife had written on, drove to a nearby payphone and rang the FBI. He didn't know what his son was capable of these days. 
he would not be complicit. Just an hour or so later, a black FBI car swooped into the lot in front of the mechanics, where Frank and his travelling companion, James MacDonald, were waiting, kicking their heels in the dust. There'd be no need for the new transmission now, as Frank's car was impounded, and both Frank and James MacDonald were taken in for questioning. In separate interview rooms, either side of the corridor, the tungsten lights above them flickering, FBI agents stood over the men. Calmly, carefully, they posed question after question. And between these two rooms, two narratives began to unfold. Atwood told investigators he had indeed been in Vicky's neighbourhood on September the 17th, the day she disappeared staying in a nearby park. He remembered that at about 3pm he'd left the park to buy drugs. Then, two hours later, he estimated, he came back. MacDonald corroborated this story, but with the addition of some important details that Frank had omitted. MacDonald remembered that he and Atwood had had a fight that day, and that his companion had left the park angry and agitated. He also remembered that when Atwood returned two hours later, he had bloodstains on his hands and clothing. When MacDonald quizzed him about where the blood had come from, Atwood told him he'd got into a fight with a drug dealer and stabbed him. The agents didn't buy it, and despite loudly protesting his innocence, Atwood was placed under arrest for kidnapping and brought back to Tucson. News of Atwood's arrest soon leaked out into the public, and the reaction was fierce. Within days, almost 3,000 people marched outside the Tucson Mall to protest laws allowing convicted child molesters like Atwood on parole. Many carried signs with Vicky's photo chanting, Save Our Children and Change Our Laws, the local newspapers reported at the time. Vicky's family, her mum, dad and her sisters, walked hand in hand at the front of the march, looking stoic, looking broken. When asked, they said they remained hopeful Vicky would one day return. Many others shared that hope too. Vicky's seat at school might have been empty for months now, but her desk was piled high with toys and photos and gifts, all waiting for the recipient to return and rejoin the classmates who had left them. The FBI knew they had to solve this case. Fueled by the hope of her community, they desperately wanted to find Vicky alive. While interviewers continued to quiz Frank, who'd admitted nothing more than being in the vicinity of Vicky's disappearance, forensic experts set to work to find undeniable evidence. Dressed in white forensic suits, they spent days scouring the interior of Atwood's car every small fold of fabric which could conceal hair or fibre, any surface which could provide a fingerprint. Every single place imaginable was examined with a fine-tooth comb. But there was nothing inside Frank's car which linked its driver to Vicky Hoskinson. But then, detectives made a breakthrough. While the inside of the car held no clues, the outside held plenty. 
Accident reconstruction experts matched pink paint on the front bumper of Atwood's vehicle to the exact colour and consistency of the paint on Vicky's bike, which had been kept as forensic evidence ever since the girl's disappearance. The experts went even further. They were able to trace scratches and dents on the car's gravel pan to one of the bike's pedals, and, like a handshake, they also found traces of nickel plating from the bumper on Vicky's bike, confirming that the car and the bike had indeed collided. This was it. They could conclusively confirm that this exact car, travelling at a slow speed, collided with Vicky's bike. There was further evidence to be gleaned from the site of Vicky's disappearance, and investigators discovered damage to the mailbox post about 12 inches above ground, consistent with the height of Atwood's sports car. They believed this was the spot where the car struck Vicky's bike. But Frank Atwood, despite being presented with mounting evidence against him, was fervently maintaining his innocence. And despite hours and hours of questioning, Police hadn't managed to glean any information about where Vicky might be. Search efforts to find her continued across the state, and Vicky's face loomed large on roadside billboards, on the bumper stickers of thousands of cars, and on posters seemingly stuck on every lamppost. It was a heartbreaking reminder of her absence, but an even stronger reminder that she might still be out there. Somewhere. On the 12th of April, 1985, a hiker was feeling the heat as he walked across the deserted area near Ina and Artesiano, an area around 20 kilometres from Flowing Wells. He rubbed his eyes, which were dry and dusty. Something on the ground caught his eye. It was round and the light bounced off its smooth surface. But as he got closer to it, he realised what that smooth round thing covered in sand was. It was a small human skull. He walked faster to the road then. He needed to find a phone. He needed to call the police. Within days, more bones were uncovered. They were dotted around the Sonoran Desert, spread by animals. Due to the state of the remains, the cause of death could not be determined. But dental records confirmed they were Vicky's remains, and that she had been placed in the desert within 48 hours of her disappearance. The public grief over this discovery was only matched by the determination to see justice done and Atwood was immediately indicted on charges of first-degree murder. Closer to home, Vicky's family and friends were finally able to put her to rest. We pray to thee, our God, this day. Their little girl was buried on May 30th, 1985, at Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery in Tucson. Her funeral was held at Casa Adobe's Baptist Church in front of around 500 people, many of whom didn't even know Vicky or her family, but who were in attendance to show their support, their eyes fixed on the beautiful white casket with gold trim as it passed by. One of the pallbearers attendees noted was Clarence Dupnick, 
the Pima County Sheriff. Clarence was there with many other fellow law enforcement officers, officers who'd worked tirelessly to find out what happened to Vicky, to bring closure to Vicky's family. The mood was understandably sombre, but this was a consistent feeling across Pima County these days. The close-knit, inclusive mood in Flowing Wells had shifted since Vicky's murder. Children were no longer allowed to play on the streets. Their parents were too scared, unwilling to take their eyes off them, even for a second. Cars sported bumper stickers which said, Don't forget Vicky Lynn. The wound was still very raw. Two years later, Atwood's highly publicised trial was moved to Phoenix in an attempt to maintain an impartial jury, which he would not find in Pima, and which, even in Phoenix, had taken six weeks to decide upon. The trial itself lasted about ten weeks. The jury heard the details of the case, the police's theory about what happened, and the protestations of innocence from Atwood. Vicky's family, who took up the entire first row of the gallery behind the prosecutor, were there throughout, silently and with dignity taking in proceedings, looking straight at the man accused of kidnapping and murdering their daughter. The longer the trial went on, the more people lined the gallery, watching events unfold, willing for justice to be served. As the trial reached an end, as the verdict was read, and as 31-year-old Atwood was convicted on all charges, the Hoskinsons reacted with silent tears, according to the Arizona Daily Star. More than a hundred people were present for the reading. Debbie spoke to the press afterwards, saying that the verdict marked a new beginning for her family. I'm on top of the world today, she bravely told the newspaper. Today, justice was served for Vicky Lynn, and for a long time, we had to wait for it. The judge presiding over the case, John Hawkins, ordered Atwood to be put to death two months after he was found guilty, though it would take decades before this sentence was carried out. Over the next 30 years, as Atwood waited for his execution to be set, He exploited his time on death row to the full. He got married and was baptised in the Greek Orthodox Christian Church. He obtained two associate degrees, a bachelor's degree in English and a master's degree in literature. He wrote six books, five of which were published, all while fervently claiming that police tampered with the evidence found on his car and that no physical evidence had been found placing Vicky inside his car. He constantly and consistently challenged his convictions and sentence. However, while Atwood had exhausted all of his appeal options by 2018, another factor was stalling his execution date being set. In 2014, the state execution of Joseph Wood went horrifically wrong. Despite being injected with over 15 times the prescribed amount of chemicals to shut down his body, It took Wood two hours to die, raising questions about the humanity of the death penalty. The state of Arizona paused its planned lethal injections pending a review. Vicky's family were crushed. 
Debbie publicly expressed her disappointment that she was still waiting for justice so many years later. The cost to our family over the years goes far beyond my ability to convey, she said. His execution will not bring our precious daughter back, but it will fulfil what justice demands. And four years later, on the morning of September the 17th, 2022, the scene which began this episode played out. Frank Atwood was executed. Debbie Carlson, who had become a victim's rights activist after her daughter's murder, told the press she was finally able to feel some peace. Smoking Gun is a What's the Story original podcast series. It's narrated by me, Romola Gary, and by me, Tracy Alexander. Executive producers for What's the Story Sounds are Daryl Brown and Sophie Ellis. The series is supported by the British Academy of Forensic Sciences. Their work supports the international fight to improve forensic techniques, to share ideas, and develop the crime-solving scientific advances of the future. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give it a rating and review and help to spread the word. You can listen to a new episode of Smoking Gun every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. If you want to listen to all episodes right now, you can find them completely ad-free on our subscription channel, What's the Story Crime. On there, you'll also get exclusive access to a whole bunch of bonus interviews led by me, where I speak to some of the most experienced and skilled forensic scientists from around the world and find out more about what they do. Those interviews are only available on What's the Story Crime. There's also a whole range of brilliant true crime content all made by the same team. You can check out The Missing, with more than 60 episodes all about long-term missing people, which invites you to try and help solve the case. You'll also find exclusive series like Jigsaw, true crime investigations like 900 Degrees and incredible stories told over several parts. Whatever you're into, if you enjoy listening to Smoking Gun, we're sure you'll find your next must-listen podcast on What's the Story Crime. Signing up is really easy. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just search for What's the Story Crime, subscribe, and you'll get all your favourite shows ad-free. 
for listeners on Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts or any other platform. All you need to do is click the link in our show notes or visit www.whatsthestorysounds.com forward slash crime. Your subscription helps to ensure we can keep making more of the content you love and it costs just $3.99 per month.